I'm sitting here today with uh, Mark Goodman. Mark uh, started working as a street cop in uh, Los Angeles, then uh, went on to become an advisor for Interpol. Uh, he eventually became the futurist for the FBI, uh, as well as the founder of the Future Crimes Institute. Uh, and in 2011, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Mark in person at the Singularity University, where he's the chair of policy, law, and ethics. Uh, now, I have to admit that uh, me and Mark started off very well and became great friends very quickly. And then, unfortunately, as I tend to do sometimes, I kind of messed up royally and probably uh, uh, messed up our friendship. Yet, despite that, Mark has been very gracious to give us a, an interview on his uh, scary new book called Future Crimes. So, thank you very much for being with us My today, My pleasure. Mark. Thank you. So, Mark, let me start our conversation today by asking you, if you were to describe yourself in a couple of words, how would you do that? Hmm. That's tough. Um, humanitarian? Protector? Protective, keenly interested in the world. Sorry, that's a lot of words. That's fantastic, actually, because I find it very interesting that a police officer or somebody deeply involved in law enforcement, as you are, would start with humanitarian. Yeah. I, I think generally law enforcement would benefit from that kind of perspective yeah. a little bit more often. Yeah, I understand. So that, that's fantastic. And that's kind of very revealing, which also leads me to the next question that I have for you. By the way, can you say those things about yourself? I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it doesn't sound grandiose. I think you can say anything about yourself. Okay. Now, the question is whether others would agree and back that's you up true. on that. <laughs> 100%. It's for others to decide. So, so let me ask you, and that's stemming from that specific answer you just gave us. Would you call yourself a law enforcement insider? Because myself, I personally would have you more as a outsider with some very good insights. <laughs> uh, yeah, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, I would say, I mean, I spent 20 years in law enforcement, right? So clearly, I, I literally grew up in law enforcement from, you know, 20 years from the age of 20 until 40 uh, being in law enforcement. So it's very much who I am and it's part of my blood. Um, and I love my brothers and sisters in law enforcement. Uh, I know that this uh, video will be seen by people all over the world. And I recognize that law enforcement is viewed differently in different countries, depending on the political system that is there. But where I worked in the United States and given my own experiences, they were good. Um, that doesn't mean I always quacked with the rest of the ducks uh, and my colleagues. Um, I tended to view things a little bit differently. And I think that's okay. And that's kind of like my personal impression. And in retrospect, perhaps that was part of the reason why we started so strong and then I kind of screwed it up because perhaps you were kind of reminding me of myself <laughs> too much in some ways, or at least that's how I'd like to see it anyway. Yes, well, uh, this is not a therapy session. <laughs> we'll work through all of these issues. Now, um, would you care to share where and when or how did your interest in law enforcement arise in the first place? And then how did you start making the connections with technology in particular? Yeah, well, they occurred at two very different stages of my life. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and there we had police officers walking around on the beat. 
And so as a young boy, I saw those tops and I thought, wow, that looks interesting what they do. Uh, and I think, uh, at least in the United States, a lot of young boys want to be police officers, firefighters, astronauts, not to be too stereotypical. Uh, and uh, I got to do that, right? I got to live that kid's dream. I always felt bad for people who ran hedge funds or VCs with no disrespect to them, like what? Six-year-old kid said, I want to run a hedge fund. So, uh, you know, they certainly make more than police officers. But, uh, yeah, I got to live that dream as a kid. Uh, and then to the second part of your question about the intersection of technology. I always kind of liked technology, but computers, you know, when I was in college were quite expensive. And so I didn't get one until uh, later in life. Um, but uh, it was actually through my first uh, cybercrime case in the police department that I kind of brought together the two, technology and policing. And so how you called yourself a humanitarian, which which is something I'm still trying to to uh, fully embrace. Uh, not that I don't embrace it, but just to a kind of let it sink in terms of the implications because mm. they're profound. Mm. So what how would you connect that to your motivation? What's your motivation? What's the thing that makes you get out of bed every morning and do what you do? Yeah. Well, I had a struggle because your question caught me off guard, although it's an excellent question. I'm sure it was meant to be um, provocative, which it certainly was. But when I think about the thing that I care about most, it's my fellow man, right? I think that's why, you know, how you define that, whether it be your children or your family or the broader humanity. I mean, we all have love in our hearts, I think, for our fellow man. Uh, and so... Uh, how that plays out actually was quite simple for me because it was written on the side of my police car to protect and to serve, right? That was the police department's motto. And while it didn't on every occasion live up to that standard, that was the goal. And I think that was an important goal. And so I grew up in New York in the 70s. Crime was really quite rampant. Murder was sky high. Assaults were sky high. And I thought that there was something wrong with that, right? That people should be better towards each other. And being a police officer is a great opportunity to kind of help right some of those wrongs, whether it's, you know, the little kid that I saw crying on the side of the road whose bike had just been stolen. Give that kid his bike back and you change his life, right? I mean, for a seven-year-old, that makes all the difference. For a victim of domestic violence, if you can come in there and stop her, traditionally or her, from being abused, then that is awesome if you can go ahead and find a lost adult or a senior or, you know, just make those types of differences. That's at the micro level, right, on a one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. As I ended up going up through the ranks, then uh, I was affecting these changes, but my police officers were when I was a sergeant and in other positions that had a few hundred people that'd be working with me in one capacity or another. And now I've tried to scale my message. I recognize that, you know, you can't arrest the world. You can't save the world, you know, as an individual police officer. But that's why I've kind of turned more of my activities towards uh, writing and teaching because, you know, if you teach, you touch the future in a very profound way through your students and through my writing, right? My TED Talk, I is very fortunate has been seen like over a million times so yeah. that's way more people than I could possibly impact on a daily basis as a cop. Well my interview with Noam Chomsky was seen only about 250,000 times so let's see if, if your interview here now if we can beat the TED talk. All right, that's that's a pretty tough competition. <laughs> so Noam Chomsky I mean. But we have more time yeah. and I am bet better prepared now so okay. I think uh, it's worth trying for. Uh, let me ask Mark, what is your biggest dream? Hmm. I mean, for me personally, it's to lead an interesting life. Mm 
and I'm very, very blessed in that regard because I have people from so many different worlds that I engage with. So at Singularity University, I mean, as you well know, Nicola, from your own time there, it's just a constant parade of astronauts and surgeons and startups and, you know, crazy cool people coming through there. And so I, I say my biggest aspiration is just to lead an interesting life and meet interesting people. And I'm very blessed that that happens every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... and now is the time when we, I think it's time for us to jump into the meat of the matter here. So let me ask you this. You know, we've both spent time at Singularity University, you a lot more than me, but Peter Diamandis, for example, tells us that, you know, we have to be bold because we live in a world of unparalleled abundance and the future is better than we think. Aubrey the Great tells us that longevity escape velocity may be closer than we think and that the first babies that may live to a thousand years are already born, perhaps. Uh, then you have pe people such as Steven Pinker who says that we live in the safest age uh, uh, in the history of humanity. A and of course, finally, we have people such as uh, Ray Kurzweil who says that the singularity is near and it would unleash unparalleled prosperity that humanity has never seen before. So, are we missing something from that picture, Mark? I think that all of those people whom you just mentioned, I know and respect and I think are making tremendous differences in society, both in science, technology, public policy, and I think the work that they're doing is phenomenal, and I support their work. Uh, you mentioned both Peter uh, Diamantis and Ray Kurzweil, both of them were kind enough to uh, blurb future times, and you know were very, very generous in that regard. Um, but all of them, as positive as they are, they recognize that um, the future that they're describing is if all goes well. And often, as you'll realize in life, not everything goes according to plan. I support their plans. I hope we have a bold and abundant future, right? I hope and look forward to what that singularity, technological singularity might look like if with Aubrey de Grey. I hope that, you know, we have radical improvements in our health and life extension. But one of the things that uh, you and I have in common is that our experiences in our past life have informed our present life and how we view things. And so I've worked in Silicon Valley for a while now, and they tend to be very optimistic about the future. And I am optimistic in the future. There's a section in Future Crimes where I talk about my own optimism. But there's sort of a realism that comes to play from putting handcuffs on thousands of people over the year <laughs> and seeing sort of the worst of humanity. And so I'm blessed in that in Silicon Valley and elsewhere I've seen wonderful examples of the best of humanity. And I've also, through my work, both in counterterrorism and law enforcement, seen some of the challenges that we face. So I think we can definitely have that abundant future. I guess the key takeaway point from Future Crimes is that it's not going to come for free. That better future that we all aspire towards is going to take proactive work on the part of the good people. Because I can tell you, as I do in several hundred pages of stories in this book, that the bad guys are working really hard to disrupt your future to benefit their own. Mm -hmm. So people often ask me why I haven't written a book yet after 160 interviews like yes. this. And the answer is usually simple. I am you know, ambitious enough to want to write a very good book or arrogant enough but at the same time I'm smart enough to understand that I'm not quite ready for it yet and that's particularly clear to me at times when I read books like yours but here's the thing th that I found about your book I think it's fantastic 
and it's incredibly well written, very witty, very smart, with very kind of nice sense of humor. And yet, the word that I would use to describe it is the scariest book I have ever read in my life. And mind you, the first scariest book that I read previously was when I was 13 and I read Frankenstein, which of course is total fiction, and yours is a hundred percent real life through cases, life stories. So is it fair to say that this is the said I am the Mary Shelley of my generation? <laughs> is that what you're trying to ask? No, no, well, is it fair to say that this is a very scary situation we find ourselves in right now? Uh, and or perhaps if you prefer to approach future crimes in a different way, how would you introduce what future crimes is all about? Um, I first to your comment, is it scary? There are certainly things in there that would raise my concerns. There are certainly things in there that would raise awareness. Uh, I'll take scary as a, a broad overview of some of the things that the bad guys are doing. So what's interesting about this book to me is this, unlike Frankenstein, is not fiction. This is nonfiction, right? This is my work over many years, a database that I've kept of, you know, thousands of cutting edge technological crimes, whether it be in robotics, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, and the like. And so I'm kind of showing just the flip side of all of these technologies that we marvel at. If you walk away uh, from reading future crimes and you feel just scared, then I haven't done my job as an author. One of the things I uh, included in the book were a variety of quotes, and there are quotes in there from everybody, from you know Albert Einstein to Homer Simpson. You know, there are things in there from Lady Gaga and Voltaire. So it kind of runs the gamut, uh, and that was done on purpose. I wanted to make the book approachable so people could understand it. But there's a quote in there, and I think it was from Carl Sagan, and I'll paraphrase poorly that basically says it's better to understand the universe as it exists right and you know rather than perceiving our delusions as to what it might be when you go to the doctor if you're 450 pounds you're drinking three liters of wine a day you're smoking 20 packs of cigarettes you know the doctor may walk in and say to you uh, you know you are a heart attack waiting to happen well, that's not fun to hear. Nobody wants to know that. It could be scary, right? If I told you that there was a murder on this block and you know an assault on that one, that may seem scary. But my goal in sharing this information certainly is not to scare people. It's to empower people, right? If I told you, you know, yes, you're at risk of a heart attack right now. But if you take these steps, you'll be fine right? Then you get to Aubrey de Grayland. You can have that other life that you want. And so that's what I was hoping to do with this. And I very purposefully in the last three chapters of the book put in very clear steps that we can take to protect against these downsides of technology and have that rich and abundant future that people like Peter Diamantis talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, L let's take a little longer to get to the last few chapters of the sure. book and, and sort of dive into the details because, because to me, one of the reasons why this, this book managed to grab me so powerfully was because you have hundreds of cases meticulously classified and listed of real-world futuristic crime that's happened or happening today. Correct. And, and the reality is most of us kind of live in a bubble, don't we? Most of us 
are kind of oblivious to the dangers that are everywhere around us right now with my cell phone, with our wireless microphone radios at the moment, with the cameras we're using or that are around us everywhere. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the bubble that we're in and, and the dangers that are out there that none of us, most of us don't really get to see other than people like you. Right. I mean, I think to survive one way or another, we need to live in a bubble, right? We couldn't possibly think of all the threats around us at all times, nor should we. The same way your immune system, right? It has things uh, that are functioning at the cellular level that never get passed up to the nervous system because there's too much noise going on there. So I don't think everybody has to have all of the noise uh, around some of these threats and, and issues that are going on. If you watch the local news, you know, I don't know what it's like here in Canada, but in the States, it's robbery, murder, fire, shooting, you know, bad stuff uh, day in and day out. And that's not the, that's kind of fear mongering. And I really hope that people don't walk away and feel as if I've done that. My goal was to present information so people can empower themselves. And I often use an explanation uh, which I think uh, clarifies it in the following way. Uh, first of all, I'm not calling for perfect security. As you well know, there is no such thing as perfect security. You yourself have a background in security. We've talked about these issues. So the goal is not to create a perfectly safe society, right? I don't want that. I, it's, frankly, it's impossible to do. It doesn't exist. Uh, so the question is, how do we make a safer society, right? One that benefits everybody. And I'll give a real world example. If you had a brand new BMW and you parked it in a really bad neighborhood in Chicago or New York or Toronto, and you left the car windows down and you left the keys in the ignition and the car was running and the lights were flashing and you had $10,000 on the dashboard and you walked away, you wouldn't be surprised if in a few minutes the car was stolen. But if you had a brand new BMW and you parked it in a great neighborhood and you used the club and all the doors and windows were locked and you had a uh, you know, GPS low jack system that could protect your car, guess what? It can still be stolen. Somebody can come by with a tow truck and still take away your car. So the goal, again, is not perfect security. It's to understand how to lock the doors to our cars and to our houses in cyberspace. All the things that the general public know how to do in physical space, IRL, in real life, you know, they know not to keep their front door unlocked and wide open when they're at work. They don't leave their keys in the car. They don't leave, you know, money on their desk in the office just laying out there for anybody to take. People understand what physical safety looks like, but they don't really understand what cyber safety looks like. And so my goal in sharing some of these stories is to understand how the bad guys are exploiting these loopholes and give people the tools they need to protect themselves. So what do you see as the biggest dangers out there? What, what in your opinion is the biggest things that we don't realize are threatening our security and safety? I guess you would understand this quite clearly having gone through Singularity University, but for most people, uh, and obviously your, your feet readers and followers in particular would be un understanding all about Moore's Law and the Singularity and the like, but the general public I don't think gets that. I don't think they understand exponentials. I don't think they understand the concept of the technological singularity most. And so they don't understand the impact of Moore's Law. One of the things I write in the book is that with Moore's Law comes Moore's Outlaws. Right? There's a flip side to all of this. And so the fact of the matter is, is that as we build a society that is almost entirely dependent upon technology, we're creating a social system 
that actually is incredibly vulnerable to collapse. Not just because people might be hacking it, but just due to system complexity. If you look at the Internet of Things and, you know, the fact that Intel says by 2020 we'll be adding 200 billion new devices on the Internet. We're going from an Internet that can support four and a half billion simultaneous connections with Internet Protocol version 4 to one that can support 78 octillion connections, 78 billion, 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 right? That means our Internet from IPv4 to IPv6 will grow from golf ball size to the size of the sun. People don't understand how much every physical object in our space will be converted into either hardware or software. As Mark Andreessen says, software is eating the world. And all of these things that were never previously hackable, whether it be your television, your car, an airplane, the electrical grid, the water and sewage treatment facilities, they're all hackable. And I would say fundamentally, that's the thing that most people don't understand. In the rush to wire the world, we fail to secure it. And you well know that you can't leave very complex systems unprotected for long without bad things happening. Now, you mentioned that together with Moore's Law, inevitably we have Moore's outlaws. Yes. Now, tell me why is it that it seems to me that it's so easy that crime scales and you have fantastic examples in your book. I mean, you, it used to be the case that one criminal could perpetrate one crime at a time. Then later with the invention of the locomotive and the trains, one criminal could drop a train, two or 300 people all at once. And now with the most recent cases, we have the, the insane ratio of one criminal being able to rob a hundred million people. And yet, that kind of scaling doesn't seem to happen on the law enforcement end of things. So, so for example, we never see one police officer arresting a hundred million criminals, do right, we? Right. Or, or investigating a hundred million cases. Right. And it seems that neither law enforcement, nor let alone other government institutions, are able to utilize even the basic principles of, of, of Moore's law, of accelerating technology, of exponential growth, and even just barely keep up. With, with, with the criminals, let alone stay ahead of them. Right. It's always been a challenge, as you point out. I have in the book examples of locomotives and other technologies. If you go back to gangland Chicago in the 1930s, you know, the, the, the gangsters had automobiles when police officers were still on horse and on foot, <laughs> literally, right? They had machine guns when cops had revolvers. So criminals have always been early adopters of new technologies. They don't have to ask permission. There's no bureaucracy. They don't have to get approval for new weapons, right? They just go out and get what they want. And now, given the fact that some of these organized crime organizations are putting through literally billions of dollars a year in profit, then they can go out and get whatever they want. They can afford the very best technology. And the challenge is, as you rightly point out, is that crime is scaling as a result of these technological achievements. On the law enforcement side, it's much more difficult because law enforcement, an arm of government, uh, is not really an exponential institution. And perhaps some people might not want it to be so. It is decidedly linear. Public policy and law, linear. International law, whatever's under, whatever's slower than linear, that's what international law is. So it's really kind of, we're playing with two very different set of rules. People ask me frequently, Mark, you know, uh, when are cops going to solve the cybercrime problem? And my answer is never, right? Because I think it's the wrong tool for the problem that we face. Uh, it's completely wrong paradigm. I write in the book about the Treaty of Westphalia that created the nation state, you know, own, own governments with their own sovereign borders. 
the internet broke that, right? Somebody from Moscow, Kiev, El Salvador, or Hawaii can log into a computer anywhere else in the world and hack, commit a crime, and create havoc against any online uh, critical infrastructure. A world that is based upon nation states and nation-based law enforcement breaks under that model because a policeman in New York City or an RCMP Mountie cannot make an arrest in Novosibirsk or in Moscow. It doesn't work that way. It all has to be done via treaties and mutual legal assistance, and that can take years. At the same time, if a bad guy wants to hide, they can change their IP address in a matter of seconds. So there are two completely different systems. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that we speak of computer viruses, we talk about computer infections, and yet we try to arrest these things, which is kind of a broken model if you think about it. If somebody has measles or Ebola, we don't put them in jail, we isolate them, we keep them away from other people, and we prevent the disease from spreading. I think an epidemiological approach to the cyber threat would be a much more logical way to handle this because we'll never arrest our way out of the cybercrime threat. There's just not enough cops, there's not enough resources, and the rules of the game don't permit it. But epidemiological approach would be kind of reactive, wouldn't it be? Can we not be a little bit more somehow proactive and strategic rather than waiting for, you know, an outbreak of this and that to happen mm -hmm. and then to react to it. Can we be proactive somehow? I think it's a great question. And uh, the, f the second half of my story on epidemiology is biomimicry. And you'll be quite familiar with this, I know. The idea that we talk about, you know, antivirus, we talk about sort of immune systems, right, uh, for the internet, but they actually don't exist at all. Right now, a statistic I, I quote in my book is that a meta study was done of 40 different antivirus uh, companies and what they found is that for new viruses that are released they only have a 5% detection rate okay 95% of malware gets through new malware gets through the top 40 AV programs so the era of antivirus is over I say in the book that if your own immune system function like computer antivirus, you'd be dead in 24 hours. So we need better systems. And that's why I talk about what we can learn from biomimicry, because we're dealing with threats around us all the time from a biological perspective, viruses, fungi, all that type of stuff. And so the question I would ask is what of that can we adapt and implement as we kind of have build this sort of global information grid? And, and so what's the let me just backtrack a little bit. So, so we are missing 95% of the viruses and the worms and things that threaten our cybersecurity out there. Yes. That means we are already infected. Yes. All of us. Yes. Pretty much. Yes. Everywhere. Ev everyone. One of the quotes I have in the book is from FBI Director Robert Mueller, who says, there's only two types of, uh, there are ver two versions of this. He says, there's only two types of computers, those that have been hacked and those that will be, or there's only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and know about it, and those who have been hacked and don't know about it. And yet someone will say, and the world keeps going. Like, we don't even notice, so what's the big deal? Like, 95% hacked, whatever. Like, right. we're still okay, we're still well-fed, 
when right. we're in a warm place, we have food and water. Yes. We have a nice shelter. What's the problem? Yeah. Well, in Toronto, it's currently <laughs> 15 below. So we're not in a warm place here, but broadly, yes. The rest of your analogy works just fine. Um, this is what I talk about in future crimes. It's not where we are today. I think that's the mistake, and particularly the media makes this mistake all the time. When they talk about hacks, they put them very much in isolated buckets as if they were isolated incidents. So Target was hacked, JP Morgan was hacked, Sony was hacked, Anthem Blue Cross was hacked, as if these were distinct events. What they don't see is that actually there's a pattern. 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, 150 million. So we see this ascendance and sort of exponential growth in the threat, that's one thing. Now, if your credit card gets hacked, right, if your bank account gets hacked, usually you're made whole as a victim of that. And so people think, ah, I'll get a new credit card. It's kind of one of the modern, you know, difficulties in life that we need to deal with this. It's an inconvenience, it's not a it's big deal. It's an inconvenience, right. Um, what I'm talking about is something much more significant. We were talking briefly earlier about the Internet of Things. Right now, the cybercrime threat is quite isolated, right? It, I lose money, a company can lose intellectual property. Not too many people have lost life, right, as a result of this. Not too many people have, you know, uh, faced really severe, severe um, sort of physical threats as a result of this. What I like to point out, and this will become particularly true on the privacy side as we look at the Internet of Things, we are, as we transition to that 78 octillion connections to the internet, we are at the first minutes of the first hours of the first days of our technological revolution. To look at where we are now and to miss where we're going, right? I mean, that's the whole benefit of having this sort of singularitarian perspective on the world is that you can see where all of this is taking us and where we're going next. So if you look down there and look at the number of things and the amount of devices that we'll have online, including the global information infrastructures, those critical infrastructures that run the world, you can see where this is taking us. And most particularly, right now, the cybercrime threat is a two-dimensional threat. They hacked my credit card, they hacked my bank account. What people often miss is the fact that we're about to enter the age of robots, right? Roboticization of the world, whether they be self-driving cars, Amazon drones, military law enforcement drones, all of those things, elderly care assistance, bots, and the like. We're already seeing it on the factory floor, but the self-driving cars are coming, right? You know, the days of the pizza delivery boy and the UPS driver are over. They don't know it yet, but they're over. Right. So what that means is that we will now have computers in our physical space that roll, crawl, fly, and swim. And guess what? They all use operating systems too, and they're all insecure. So the cyber threat is going to go from a two-dimensional threat into a three-dimensional threat. And robots can punch, hit, kick, steal, shoot. Right? The stupid fun club in Berkeley had the first robot that ever committed a shoplift. They went ahead and took a robot. They sent it into a 7-Eleven. The doors opened. The robot picked up some Twinkies and went out the door without paying. Um, so we've already seen that. And by the way, in the book, I did some research. The first robot that was ever arrested was in 1982. So for distributing flyers in a public place without permission in, in a New business York district. City. Yeah, in I think Manhattan. it was in Beverly Hills, actually. Was it? Yeah, that one was. So, I mean, we've run into this problem before, but I guess that's one of the things that people don't quite get. And then the other thing that people may not be foreseeing is the rise of the algorithms, right? The big data, the algorithm, uh, AI, both narrow and, you know, uh, general artificial intelligence. But people may be inclined to say, look, 
you know, yes, you're describing those very advanced robots, but they would be much safer because they're more advanced. And I mean, look at the military robots that we have today. Aren't they so much safer than, let's say, my own laptop? You'd like to think so, but actually in this book, I give several examples of drones and robotics being hacked. So there were two in particular that I talk about. One was, uh, if you look at the Taliban um, back in Afghanistan, one of the things that they did in the early phases of the Iraq and Afghanistan war in about the 2003 timeframe was, as drones were flying over Afghanistan, those Taliban were actually able to hack those drones and download the video feeds that were coming in. So they used, I think, a $28 piece of Russian software, software that was created to seal, to steal satellite television stations like HBO and the like. They used that software and repurposed it to go ahead and intercept the video feed. So as the US government were flying their drones over Afghanistan, the Afghani Taliban were looking at those drone feeds in real time. Back in 2003, they were doing this. I also tell another example where students at the University of Texas kept on calling to DHS, the Department of Homeland Security in the United States, and saying, hey, your drones are hackable, your drones are hackable, and DHS said, our drones aren't hackable. By the way, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, they patrol the border the, between Mexico and the United States. There are a very large number of drones that Even patrol. Even the Canadian border too, yes. by the way. Yes, absolutely. I think those are geese that they use there, but they could be powered <laughs> by drone technology. <laughs> so down in Mexico, they were flying the drones and these students from uh, University of Texas told DHS, we can hack your drones. DHS didn't believe it. They called them in for a demonstration and they were able to spoof the GPS coordinates of a drone and get it to land. And by the way, the Iranians did the same thing against the Americans. So these With one of the top secret drones that hasn't been seen before. Exactly, which has now landed you know, in Tehran or some place on the outskirts of Tehran. So all of these computers can be hacked and there are lots of examples of that. And the kind of most embarrassing detail to me when I was originally researching that story myself because I was a student of political science yes. at that time, was the fact that the military didn't even bother encrypting Sorry. the Correct. original video signal Correct. from the drone to headquarters and just left them because the perception is we constantly underestimate our enemies exactly or we constantly they're underestimate a bunch of guys those. in caves exactly right right yeah so so well, we see what they're capable of very interesting so let me ask you this mark is it you give a number of fantastic examples in your book and you talk about both the dangers stemming from criminal hackers as well as what you call corporate data brokers yes can you speak a little bit about these two and which ones are the biggest threat in your opinion or the biggest danger to an average citizen like me I think there are risks from both. If you look at who has more data, it's actually the data broker industry, quite frankly. Um, the rules vary from country to country. So in Canada, in Europe, UK, they will have national privacy commissioners that are responsible for protecting citizens and their data. In the United States, there is no such thing. So companies can keep as much data on you for as long as they want, for whatever purpose they want. Those decisions can impact everything from whether or not you get mortgage or receive health care or get a job and it's completely unregulated uh, for the most part these third-party data brokers 
The challenge about them is that we're all producing so, so much data, locational data on our mobile phones, how we type, how fast we type, all of that data is actually being correlated and saved because now basically data storage is free. So they're keeping all of this data. And the question is, what will they will be what will they be doing with it in the future? Because of course information is power. And so they're entirely unregulated in the United States. And the other challenge is, is that they're really poor stewards of this data. In there I tell, you know, story after story of large data brokers that have been hacked. So companies that are supposed to be safeguarding your data are either literally selling it directly to organized crime groups because organized crime sets up a front company to buy a hundred million social security numbers and the data Data brokers get paid when they sell the data, not when they protect it, right? So the incentives are a little bit off. And so it's either leaking or they're being hacked. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't get which one would be the bigger threat then, the, 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 the criminal hackers or the data brokers? Yeah, I've got, this is really political, but I think some of the behavior of the legitimate data brokers borders on criminal. So perhaps not to the law, but from if you're a privacy activist, uh, there's a lot to be concerned about. In their own defense, they would say, well, didn't you read our terms of service? And you're basically, we're not stealing anything like the criminals. You're giving it all to us for free. And by the way, we have a full disclosure in the terms of service. So how could you ever dare to claim that we are the more dangerous ones? Right. Yeah, I know. So, you know, I take on that assumption in the book. There is, uh, I call those terms of service terms of abuse, right? Because first of all, I have read and agreed to the terms of service is the biggest lie on the internet, right? We all just click, nobody reads them. Facebook, when it started out, had a thousand word terms of service. They're now up to about 9,000 words, okay? Uh, the United States Constitution is only 4,400 words. The largest terms of service in the industry is PayPal at close to 36,000 words and Shakespeare's Hamlet to be or not to be is only 33,000 words. A study was done and it showed that, for, at least for Americans, if the average American read every terms and service that he or she confronted you know, throughout their life over a year, that it would take them 78 days full time reading those terms of service just to go in. So I think that whole regimen is completely, completely broken. And most people don't even realize what they're agreeing to. There is an example that I quote in the book of a dating company in the United States called OkCupid. And so OkCupid's a dating company and you fill out your profile and they'll ask you, uh, do, you know, do you have sex uh, once a week, twice a week, three times a week with one person, multiple people? They'll get into that type of stuff. And then they get into your drug use and they, a researcher from the Federal Trade Commission in the United States looked at the cookies that were being dropped on your computer as you were filling out those questions and they might make perfect sense in one particular um, point of view in that if you're looking to date somebody and you like smoking marijuana or using cocaine, maybe you want to find a partner who also likes smoking cocaine. So, all right, that makes sense. I'll say yes. I love cocaine and I use it five times a week. What they didn't realize is that was dropping a cookie. Okay, Cupid was dropping a cookie and taking your answer to that question and repurposing it and selling it to a third party data broker who then would resell it to employers and government security agencies so that if you ever applied for a job at my company, I can now check and say, oh, Nicola admitted in this type of situation that he used drugs, not you in particular, but the generic person went ahead and admitted that they used drugs. I should go and recheck my answers. You should go ahead and double check that. 
that yes for your dating profiles. <laughs> Back but, in the day. Exactly. Yeah. Information that we give under one set of circumstances can be used and repurposed in others. And that dating site is just but one of example. Mm -hmm. So tell us a, a little bit about what is Goodman's Law. <laughs> so uh, Mr. Moore, Gordon Moore, created Moore's Law and everybody cites that. So I jokingly created Goodman's Law, which is uh, perhaps a corollary. Right now we live in the age of big data, right? Data scientists, uh, those that do big data analytics will say, data, 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 we want more data, we can do analytics, it will answer all of life's questions if we just have enough data. And data science is growing phenomenally and the United States just appointed its very first chief data officer for the country. So clearly there's an understanding that this is a growing field. Um, but the more data you keep, <laughs> the more that eventually will leak. So Goodman's law is the more data you keep, the more organized crime is happy to steal and to consume. So all of this data leaks out eventually. People might not realize it, but all of that stuff that you put out on Facebook, it all leaks eventually. Most people wouldn't know that Facebook is hacked 600,000 times. Not a year, not a month, but a day. Every single day, 600,000 accounts are compromised at Facebook. And those statistics come from the chief security officer of Facebook. So anything that you share online, of course you should expect to leak. That's absolutely flabbergasting. When you, when you, when you quote numbers and statistics like this and you have so many of them in the book, it's it's that part that really you know scares me quite i'm not lying it's there i i know i know and that's why it's it's so powerful because it's not fiction it's reality and and most of us don't live in that reality don't it's not real somehow for us. Well, it's funny. All right, I'm going to do something I wasn't planning on doing, but you talk about living in that reality. If I may, I'm going to read something Absolutely. from the book, and you can edit Absolutely. this out if you don't like it. Um, but, you know, you're living in the reality. You just may not know that you're living in the reality. Um, so I say, uh, before you read this book, a friendly warning. If you proceed in reading the pages that follow, you will never look at your car, smartphone, vacuum, or vacuum cleaner the same way again. And then I go on. And this is a quote from uh, another source. It says, this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I will show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. And of course, you'll recognize that quote as being Morpheus's warning to Neo in The Matrix. So. I think there's a parallel, and that's why I closed the very um, prologue of this book with that quote, because I thought that you're living in this world. You can choose to believe you're not living in this world, but in fact, we're all living in this world. And I can understand why people would not want to be assaulted with a lot of this negative stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that information can help protect you. It can help protect your family and it can help protect your business. And more importantly, as a society, we cannot continue to wire the world without protecting it and securing it without expecting some sort of bad consequence in the future. So we have to deal with it. It's a little bit like the environment, right? You know, 30, 40 years ago, we would throw our garbage and pollution into the rivers and oceans and wouldn't think about that. Now we understand, ooh, this is bad for us, right? So it may be hard to realize, wow, we've been drinking contaminated water. Ooh, that's not good. I don't want to know about that. But of course you do. You don't want to drink contaminated water. And the first step to know is that the water's contaminated is to realize that so that you can change the situation. Mark, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today and I have 
you know, questions for many hours, but unfortunately we're running out of time. So I'd like to ask you my two last questions because I think it's a good place, this is a good place for us to, to open the book because I think it, 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 that passage that you read serves as a good invitation for people to consider whether they want to go any further or they want to stay in their bubble. And I think that that's a good place for people to stop and think and make their choice. So let me ask you, what's the best place for people to, who want to follow your work uh, to go to and, and find more about you? Well, certainly to learn the most about me, it would be in this book, Future Crimes. It's lots and lots of information. Uh, also uh, at futurecrimes.com, they'll find information on Twitter. I'm at Future Crimes. They'll also find me at Singularity University as well. And as I mentioned, there's a TED Talk they can see on this topic. And is there a parting message that you'd like to send us off with, or perhaps the most important thing that we would that we should take away from this conversation with you? Sure. I guess it would go back to the very first question that you opened with, is, or one of the first, when you were talking about Peter Diamantis and Ray Kurzweil and Aubrey de Grey and how they view the world and how I describe it in my book. Um, I'm not saying that we are destined and bound for a dystopian future. I think technology is awesome. What I'm saying is we have to be much more present and participative in the world that we're developing and how we develop our tools. We have everything it takes to solve the security crisis that we face of our technological tools. The thing I like to point out is that President Kennedy in the 1960s boldly stated that we were going to put a man on the moon by the end of that decade. We did that, right? We are the same species that put a man on the moon. If we can put a man on the moon, we surely can solve some of these cyber and other technological security threats. It's just gonna take time and attention. And that's what I hope this book will contribute to start that conversation. Mark Goodman, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola, I appreciate it. Thank you.